welcome to the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. I'm your host, Lonnie Swain. I'm a media veteran, digital content creator, and strategist. My career has required many cross-country relocations from my hometown of New Orleans to Baltimore, St. Louis, Chicago, Dallas, back to New Orleans, and now Miami, Florida. The purpose of this show is to remind you that everyone has to go through something to get somewhere. I lead personal and professional development conversations in hopes of inspiring you to live your best and most authentic lives. And just a reminder, I always love to know what you think about the podcast. So don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much for listening. Now let's get into the show. All right. Today's episode, we are talking about a very serious subject that is very, very important to me. And I think to the... um, how do I want to say this to the, the the betterment of our society, healing those childhood traumas as an adult. And today joining me, I have Rakima Dolio Parson. She is a licensed professional counselor and Louisiana native and registered play therapist whose own experience overcoming childhood traumatic stress led her to pursue a career as a therapist. Rakima not only believes that there is valuable work to be done through providing individual therapy services, but she also embraces the responsibility of advocating and providing outreach. She has presented at both national and regional conferences and is active in working to help enhance the policies related to mental health. Rakima has also volunteered as a mentor through an organization that supports children of incarcerated parents. She is driven by her desire to minimize barriers to accessing mental health information and services. Rakima works with individuals of all ages with the goal of enhancing both mental well-being and interpersonal functioning. Rakima, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here talking about this very, very important subject matter. And I know that in your bio, you mentioned that your own personal experiences overcoming childhood traumatic stress led to your pursuit of this career as a therapist. Could you talk more about how you got interested in therapy and how your personal experiences related to your interest? Yeah. So growing up, I did not get access to therapy services and I should have. And so I navigated through life, going to school and and doing what I needed to do, not at my peak though. So I will say I wasn't the student that was voted, you know, the best in class and all those things. I kind of slid under the radar and was able to get through. Went to college and then I had this epiphany, right? I was in my dorm room and really struggling trying to get through everything because I had all this unhealed trauma from childhood and I'm supposed to get up and go to class and go to my work job. And it was really, really hard to, to do those things. And even in those moments, I still didn't seek therapy. I didn't know about it. And I was a biology pre-dentistry major because growing up in poverty, my mom was like, girl, you better go be a doctor or a dentist. You know, that's where the money is. And so I was going to those classes and I didn't feel fulfilled. But I spent a lot of time volunteering and I started volunteering with an organization that served women that have been previously incarcerated. And so we worked hand in hand with them. The students worked with those women as they rehabilitated and got back acclimated into society. And it really left a mark on me because my parents were incarcerated when I was growing up. So at the age of three, my parents were incarcerated. And so I was left to uh, live with my grandparents, which 
you know, they did the best that they could, but that was a strain on them as well. And so then left to deal with the ramifications of being a child of incarcerated parents and also living in poverty. And so from there, you know, exposure to relatives that abuse substances and different things like that, I had to then perform and go to school, you know, and get through all of the things my peers were getting through. But I had all this other baggage going on at home that nobody knew about. So when I got to college and I was out of that environment, I had time to think and cry, right? Because in my family, you survive and you get up and you do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had an opportunity to kind of sit down and realign my priorities, change my major, (laughs) graduated, Mm -hmm. immediately went to graduate school. I moved to Texas and started a graduate program and got a degree in counseling and got training in play therapy and started working with kids like myself. And I got, I did get help as an adult. So I want to say that as a clinician, as a therapist, I talk a lot to my colleagues about really looking at like, are you open to getting counseling yourself? I find concern when I have other practitioners say, no, I don't think I need counseling. Well, I believe that counseling works for my clients, which means that counseling works for me as well. So I did get help as an adult and, you know, and worked through those things and was able to start the healing process to heal those traumas. But it was a winding road. Like the journey to get here was very much winding. It's not that I was like, oh, at the age of five, I always knew I wanted to be a mental health professional. It was more of a calling Mm -hmm. based on my own experience and being able to overcome it. So how were you introduced to therapy since you said, you know, it wasn't something that was talked about when you were growing up or that was introduced at an early age? Who introduced you to therapy or was it something that you kind of looked into and discovered on your own? So one of the really nice things about my graduate program, so even all throughout undergrad, there was a counseling center, I'm sure. I went to LSU and I'm sure there was a counseling center, but I never visited it. And then I was like, okay, I want to be a mental health professional. I wanted to become a therapist. Went, went oh, to Texas. so you you found that interest without ever having therapy? <laughs> yes, which oh, is um, okay. So interesting. Um, yeah, I still had never experienced the power of therapy and how transformative it could be. But I knew I wanted to be able to help people and impact people. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to this program. Moved and and started the program, which that was a journey in of itself, which I talk a lot to in a lot of my advocacy around a lot of the barriers to actually becoming a therapist. Sometimes people can fall into it from a place of privilege because it costs a lot to go to the programs. You do a lot of unpaid internships. So it can be challenging for people like myself who don't have you know, family resources to actually continue in the field and get the credentials because a lot of the work is unpaid. So I got to the program and was really struggling financially to to make it work and to be able to stay there. And a part of the requirement for our program was to go to counseling. Initially, I was reluctant Mm -hmm. um, because there's a stigma in our community. And so even while I was there and I was learning about it and I'm in class and I'm like, hmm, this sounds like, oh, so all the things I went through growing up, that wasn't normal? Right. (laughs) Other people, not everybody experienced that. I started learning those things in the program. Wow. So we had to go to counseling and I told my mom and my mom, she's funny and I love her, but she can be funny. And so initially she was like, oh, you're going to go. They're going to make you go tell somebody everything. And I'm like, 
well, yeah. And she's just like, well, don't let those people give you medicine. And so that, that's kind of where that stigma comes in again. And so then I was still reluctant. Like, my mom's not on board with me going. And she didn't really understand the process. And I still, you know, wasn't far enough along in the program to completely understand what was going to happen. Um, but I went. And I loved it. <laughs> I loved going. And so I had a really good experience. And it was the first time that I was able to talk to someone Mm-hmm. very seriously about what had happened to me. Growing up, I was pretty funny. And so I would go to school and tell people jokes about what was happening. And mm-hmm. I really don't think people thought it, it was, was serious. True. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so because even now I'll talk to people and they're like, oh, that happened. And I'm like, yeah, I used to tell you all about it. And they're like, oh, we thought you were just making a joke. <laughs> this was the first opportunity that I had to be able to talk to somebody about what I had experienced and I loved going. And so from there, I think that really impacted the type of therapist that I am now, because if I hadn't gone, yeah, I just, I don't even know. I don't even know how I could do this work without having, you know, work through my own, my yeah. own. Issues. So I think it's really important. And I advocate for other mental health professionals to be plugged into a therapist if they haven't already, or even ongoing because the work I do now, I work with trauma. And so I still tap into that resource when I need to to Mm -hmm. talk to someone about the vicarious trauma that I experienced from working with clients um, that are currently experiencing trauma. Mm -hmm. And so two things that you said that I am very um, happy that you shared and, and really appreciate you sharing. Number one, that here it is, you are going into the mental health field and we're reluctant to get therapy. I think that's very interesting to say like, oh, I believe in this and I want to help people, but then being reluctant to get the the therapy yourself at that time. And then also the, the piece about in our community, just being so reluctant to get. And I think that that is part of the like stigma of mental health and that, oh, if you're talking to somebody, you must be crazy or you must be sick or whatever. And that's what keeps a lot of people from going to therapy, a lot of people who need it. And personally, I'm of the belief that everybody could could benefit from therapy, regardless of what your background or your upbringing was. So that piece, I think, is really important. And I thank you for sharing that. And then also the piece about a lot of people having difficulty getting into the field and being able to stay in the field because of all of the free work and the expense. Something that I had never even thought of or heard talked about openly. So I appreciate you sharing that as well. The next thing that I think is important to talk about is the traumas that people experience And I think a lot of people, when you think of trauma, they think of like specifically physical abuse or sexual abuse. And it is the more traditional ideas of of what abuse is. But I think that so many people neglect to recognize emotional abuse and, and mental abuse and verbal abuse as equally traumatic experiences that can impact who we are and and who we show up as in the world from that, you know, experiencing as children. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. The American Counseling Association defines trauma and I'll, I'll summarize it. But the way trauma is defined is it can be experiencing an event that impacts 
your view and your belief about yourself, the world, or your sense of security. So with that being said, it, it can be subjective, right? So two people can experience the same thing and based on the other experiences they've had in life that they can help bounce back from those things, it may not come into something that's extremely distressing um, that causes them to need clinical assistance, right? But when we talk about those things, I think like you said, there are other ways that we can experience trauma. So emotional abuse, natural disasters. We know we're both from Louisiana. Yeah. Um, natural disasters, you know, burglary, a hit and run car accident, right? Mm -hmm. Those things can be very traumatic. In addition, I spoke about my experience of being a child with incarcerated parents growing up and that's also traumatic. And I think you and I briefly talked previous, um, just the stigma around some of those traumas that are not as socially acceptable or the grief that you experience with traumas when they're not socially acceptable. So if you're grieving and you have a parent, you've lost a parent, society will wrap their arms around you. There's a community of people that come together to help you and your family. Typically, they'll bring food, they'll bring different things to help your family get through that tough time. But what does that look like for children and individuals who have parents that have maybe committed a crime and they are incarcerated? Yeah. That child, that person is still grieving, you know, the loss of that parent. But because it's something that's not as socially acceptable, they sometimes lack that community that comes and wraps their arms around them and brings them mm -hmm. food. Yeah. So those things can make it really challenging. Mm -hmm. And when you specifically in, in being the child of incarcerated parents and working with children of incarcerated parents, what are some of the typical behaviors or um, markers that you notice in, in their behavior that they have not been properly supported and, and some of the ways that that trauma manifests itself? We can externalize or we can internalize, right? So when we've experienced anything and with a lot of mental health disorders, there are individuals that present with internalizing behaviors and that may look more like the kids who are quiet or to themselves, they may isolate. And oftentimes for the kids who present with internalizing behaviors, they're often at schools or at home seen as maybe good kids, right? And sometimes they fly under the radar. They still have needs that need to be met and most likely can benefit from services. But because they're not having those maybe more loud or larger behaviors, people just kind of say, okay, well, she's quiet. She's in the room or he's in there playing his video game by himself. He's, you know, safe and sound and quiet. There are other children who have externalizing behaviors and they present with maybe aggression or they're talking too much in class or whatever that may be. Those behaviors are typically the ones that will have adults take notice and then they'll get kids and services. Both types could benefit from services, but what I've seen is nine times out of 10, the larger behaviors, the more disruptive behaviors, um, the behaviors that cause adults inconvenience. Mm -hmm. typically are the ones that are more noticeable and get kids into services a little faster because now, like I said, they're inconveniencing either the parent or the caregiver or the teacher's day. Um, and so then they'll say, okay, well, we need to get them in services quickly. But there is no one response to trauma. 
every child looks differently and there could be a child presenting with all of those things. What would you say from your work and experience that the most common types of overlooked traumas many women of color have experienced or are affected by? I'd say probably more emotional and verbal abuse, neglect, those things that maybe people are kind of used to experiencing, as well as poverty. And I, and I talk a lot when I talk about clients of color or people of color, I talk about poverty. And that doesn't mean that all people of color are in poverty. Um, but from my experience and what I know about the systemic issues that we face over all these years is that a large portion of our community lack resources just based on the systems that are in place. And so sometimes we fall into that category and growing up in poverty or lacking lacking resources can feel traumatic. Something else that I wanted to comment on that you said earlier too was that it wasn't until you got to college and you were talking to a counselor or someone else or going through your classes and saying, oh, so what I experienced wasn't normal. You know, I think that we a lot of times normalize dysfunctional behavior or dysfunctional treatment. And especially, I think, in communities where the dysfunction is more prevalent, whether that be through poverty or lack of education or just generational behaviors that are not necessarily normal. Just even talking about like the verbal abuse. And I know that growing up, my mom might have cursed me out and I'm talking to my cousin saying, do you know my mama told me this? And they're like, girl, that ain't nothing. My mama told me this yesterday. And it's just absolutely that, that, you know, when you talk to someone else, maybe of a different background and you're like telling them everything, they're like, your mother told you that? (laughs) You know, like that, my mom would never say such a thing. And I think that, It's so interesting. And we've talked about, you know, having other conversations about like the mother daughter relationship or even like daddy issues and things like that, that having those types of relationships with our early caregivers and things like that, then definitely impact how we relate to other people as adults. Can you talk about some of the ways that we may be presenting as adults that can kind of identify there may be some unhealed childhood traumas. Mm -hmm. So to go back just a little, so when we talk about trauma too, you could be a primary, you know, recipient of trauma, or you could even be a secondary person experiencing that. And what that looks like when I talk about um, inter or multi-generational trauma with the secondary piece could be that you could be a child or individual who has not experienced any of the things we talked about personally or firsthand, but you're being raised by a person that has, mm-hmm. right? And the way they view the world based on what they experienced and they haven't healed mm-hmm. helps and shapes how you view the world. Mm-hmm. So if they're living in an unhealthy space, mental space, and they haven't healed that, and now they've got kids and they start to raise those kids with that worldview based mm-hmm. on their life experience, that child is also impacted. So they could have never seen it, heard it, heard any of the things that happened. You could never tell them about it. But walking in that unhealthy space, which is why it was really important for me to go and, you know, do my work 
It's yeah. because I know a lot of adults in my personal life who haven't done that work. And that impacts you um, as you live and experience them. So that's one piece and how it impacts us as we, you know, create this inner dialogue. There's a lot of research around experiential learning and I'm in a unique space because I've spent most of my career being a therapist in educational settings. Mm -hmm. And I've done that very intentionally because children go to school, right? And may not always come to a therapist, but they will (laughs) go to school. So I've been very intentional about finding opportunities to serve in educational settings. I've worked in charter schools, K-12, I've worked at universities even as a therapist to be able to have access and provide access to individuals. But a lot of schools are working really hard to incorporate experiential learning. You know, it was a buzzword back a couple years ago and it works. And what we know about experiential learning based on research is that it helps to embed those messages and whatever you're learning into the autobiographical memory. And so when I think about trauma or things you experienced growing up, that's experiential learning, right? And if we believe that experiential learning is one of the better ways to retain information and actually understand information, what's your environment teaching you? Mm-hmm. about yourself or about the world or about other people? Um, what experiences are you having or have you had teaching you about yourself, about how you think, about how you feel, and about how you view the world? So those early experiences start at, at, at birth, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so as you grow up with these little experiences here and there, you start to cultivate your view of yourself and the world, and that self-talk comes in. So that could be something as small as being in a class and not getting an assignment right. And a teacher says, oh, you really messed that up, right? Mm -hmm. Or after so many times of hearing that or having experiences that reinforce that you messed things up, that becomes a part of your inner dialogue. And then as an adult, how does that manifest? Yeah, in a myriad of ways where you start to have that inner dialogue around all sorts of things. So those things could sound like I messed things up. People don't like me. So you've had experiences that reinforce that or I'm not worth this or, you know, I don't deserve this or whatever those voices are that we all have. We all have those things, those inner things that we're in our quiet space. Something might pop up and you say, oh, man, where'd that come from? These are based on the experiences we've had. And so as we walk through life, we will have those things pop up on a daily basis, whether it be at work, school, wherever we are in our interpersonal relationships, professional Um, relationships where we might have these maybe negative self-talk. And when I talk to people about it, for every one of those thoughts that you have that may not be as positive, you got to build up a toolbox. So as those things pop up and they impact your functioning and what you believe about yourself um, and make it hard for you to present to the world in the way that, you know, would be your optimal self, because you have these thoughts of maybe I can't do this. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I don't deserve this. You've got to have equal or more in your toolbox that are positive. So you got to start building up that toolbox once you're an adult. Ideally, you'd you'd have experiences as a child, but if you hadn't, you have to start working through that now to build up those those positive pieces. If someone is listening and they're thinking, oh man, you know, I did have some of those types of experiences as a child and I've never had counseling. What are some behaviors or 
symptoms of that trauma that you see outside of the negative self-talk or things like that, that people will usually present in a, in a counseling session saying their behavior that is now becoming destructive or repeating that traumatic experience in, in their adult life, how that are the behaviors that people could be aware of, whether in themselves or in observing other people that they're around to say, oh, there's there's something unhealed there. It can look a multitude of ways, just like, you know, with children, mm-hmm. as adults, we can be internalizers or externalizers. And so that might look like someone as an externalizer who gets real angry and gets aggressive and they may say things that they wish that they hadn't said or do things they wish they hadn't done, right? Um, based on those unhealed pieces, or that could be the adult who things have happened all day long or someone has done something to them and they've never spoken up for themselves, right? Out of fear of saying, well, well, the last time when I was younger, when I spoke up, X, Y, Z might have happened, right? And so really internalizing the idea that I don't have a voice or if I have a voice, I might be unsafe, right? Mm-hmm. Or the externalizer who says, you know, versus fight versus flight, I'm going to fight. And I'm going to take care of myself before somebody else can hurt me. And so really looking at those things where is there an actual threat or is it a perceived threat? And so when we think about trauma, sometimes our external world, we see a lot of perceived threats. If we've experienced these reinforcements in our early childhood that tell us that there's lots of things around me that I should be afraid of or I should feel threatened by. And then we can become reactive. Oftentimes, people don't even know that they've experienced those things until they hear examples of them. And so they they come in and they're like, well, I just don't feel like myself, you know, or whatever that may be. And then as you start to talk and unfold those things, you realize, okay, well, here's here's the point of, you know, when these things started to develop for you. And I think as far as like helping people to overcome it, I look at it like how you learn a language, right? So learning a language, you can go and you can look at a textbook and you can read about it and you might know some words. But what we know is one of the better ways to learn a language is to immerse yourself in that culture, in that language, and you'll be able to learn it and retain it. The same thing goes for taking care of yourself and and building up that positive self-talk and in retraining your brain because all, all humans have a negativity bias. Like you said earlier, everybody can benefit from services, right? But if we already are skewed toward the negative naturally, and then we have these experiences that reinforce that over and over again, it can be really hard to get out of that. So in mm-hmm. order to do that, you've got to immerse yourself in the positive and really look for opportunities in your current world to reinforce the positive things that you desire. What are maybe three tips that they can do to start to kind of immerse in the positive and and get on the track of healing? One of the first steps would be starting out with, with getting those feelings out, right? And so that doesn't mean that you have to verbally go up to everybody and tell them about what happened or what you are experiencing, or it could mean that, right? But even something as simple as a journal or even using the notes on your phone. I'll say even for myself as a therapist, there are times that I'm driving and I, you know, I park because I'm like, oh, I had this thought and I'll put it in the notes section of my phone because I want to get it out of my head and somewhere else and let that other space hold it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hold it anymore. Right. I need mm-hmm. to put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So whatever that looks like for you, that could be an electronic way, like in a note section of your phone or written in journaling and being able to put it down. Mm-hmm. I think the second piece would be 
looking for things either visually or auditory that you can use to reinforce these positive messages that you want to ingrain. Something that I've used and I've recommended, audible podcasts, really immersing yourself in experiences with positive things, um, whether that be you have a Pinterest board that has all these positive affirmations that you can tap into when you start to feel those negative things rising up to the top, or whether that be an audible or a podcast that's really positive that you can listen to to reinforce positive things when you start to have those feelings. That can be really helpful as well. Um, I think the third thing, of course, as a therapist, <laughs> I'd say seeking seeking services. I offer those first two things first because I'm aware um, as a therapist of color and as someone who, you know, I I'm, come from a family that everybody in my family is not open to therapy, right? And so I'm aware that there are things that people can do outside of therapy that can help them improve their functioning. And so I always want to offer those things first. But sometimes journaling, podcasts, and Audible may not be able to get you to your optimal functioning. And then once you try those things and you say, man, there's still something there that I need to work through, it wasn't as simple as, you know, having these affirmations on a Pinterest board and seeking out services to really dig deeper. There's lots of different modalities that you can try. You know, I do play therapy with kids. There's also DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy that a lot of therapists do with adults um, to help with those things, all types of different modalities. You Mm -hmm. can Google them, look into them. One great resource is psychology today to search people in your area Um, But I get out into the community and talk about those first two things first with people and do a lot of psychoeducation to identify what is adaptive versus maladaptive so people can start to say, okay, well, these things aren't healthy. You know, these coping skills that I have right now are not healthy, right? When Mm -hmm. I'm stressed and I go and I get Reese's. That's my that's my thing. Um, that's not as healthy as something else. So really looking at those things first and kind of doing an audit, you know, and, and getting it all down on paper, getting it out of your head, and then determining, is there still something else here that I could do to improve my functioning? And if that is the case, seeking out services. And so now you're located in Austin, Texas. Yes. So if someone wants to get in touch with you in Austin or what are the areas that you are able to service or can you work with clients from other states or cities or how does that work? So right now, my primary work is with children that have experienced trauma in Austin. For adults, my recommendation, if people want to reach out, I'm happy to help them find somebody. I'm pretty plugged into the community and I can help them find a good fit for them moving forward. I'm trying to start a new feature that I have to get more consistent about and Lonnie's last five, the last five questions that I'm going to ask on every episode of the podcast going forward. Um, And so these are just questions to kind of get to know you a little bit better and get some Mm -hmm. inspiration from you personally. What is one of your guilty pleasures? I know you mentioned Reese's earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so one word. It doesn't have to be one word. Oh, sorry. (laughs) So, uh, Flamin' Hot Cheetos. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All of mine are food related. Okay. (laughs) If you had intro music every time you walked into a room, what song would it be and why? It would probably be something by P. Diddy. <laughs> I like his. I like his energy. I like. Yes. I like his. I like his energy. He's he's got. Yeah, 
you know, he's got confidence. So I like Yes. Uh-huh. I agree. They say everyone should have a go-to joke that they can tell if asked to. Do you have one? Oh, let's think. <laughs> I'm trying to think what my joke is. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's a great one. Um, don't have a go-to joke. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty funny, though. <laughs> right, you said that. So I'm surprised you don't have a go-to joke. Oh, what's my go-to joke? Huh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you have to get your go-to joke, and the next time I we know. talk, I'm going to ask you for it. <laughs> I know. Okay, if you could only keep three apps on your phone, which ones would it be and why? Instagram. <laughs> of course. Instagram, um, Gmail. So Instagram, I say, because... I can stay connected to just people in general. And I like pictures. I like seeing fun, happy pictures um, and positive things. I try to follow people that are pretty positive. So if there's people that I don't know in real life, I'm following positive, you know, mm-hmm. strangers, right? So mm-hmm. people that have good, positive contact. Um, yes. Gmail, I, I live on Gmail. Always mm-hmm. getting an email. I have multiple accounts. Um business work personal um right. so gotta have that and i think the last one will probably be um simple habit it's like a meditation app um, okay and a lot of the a lot of the meditations are like five minutes and so even with my clients i'm like i'm not going to give you something to add to your to-do list that's going to take an hour to do because right. we're pretty busy people <laughs> um and so something that's five minutes to, to kind of enhance your self-care i'm all about it Mm-hmm. Love that. What is, and this is a few more than five, what is the biggest challenge being a woman in your field? <sighs> so that's so that's tough because I'm in a female dominated field, but I can speak to, I, I hope this is okay. Um, being a black woman in my field, there can be some challenges around because I, I, I am passionate about the work that I do and really struggling with that, that line of people perceiving your passion as aggression. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can be challenging because I am pretty vocal about things. And so sometimes it may feel, or I might even be reluctant to speak up out of concern that, okay, maybe this will come off wrong. Right. Whereas I feel like sometimes my counterparts may not always experience that or that hasn't been ingrained from family or society as much. So I think that's been a challenge because I am in a female dominated, you know, industry, uh, mental health. And so I think it's been more of being a black woman in the field and really being mindful of like societal stereotypes mm-hmm. and really having to work hard to make sure that, that I'm just really, I have to really be intentional about what in picking my battles around things and how I express myself. Gotcha. And I think that black women in all fields can relate to that experience. Something that you learned in 2018 that you're applying in 2019. I think one of the main things, and I've shared this, that I believe in therapy as a therapist. So I have a therapist, right? And so a lot of what I've worked on is not being so rigid, right? And being able to to get outside of the black and white thinking. And so really looking to say like, it doesn't have to be all bad. It doesn't have to be all good. There could be a happy medium in the middle. And so really being able to shift my perspective. So I've been able to, to just really work from that framework now. And it really helps with just the peace of mind each day of not having to feel overly disappointed by expectations that may be one extreme or the other. 
Mm-hmm. And for my final question, what is a quote or piece of advice that you live by? I think so. My grandma, she was a very, she is a very hard worker. Um, and so I think the piece of advice is just always go hard, like always do your best, no matter where you are or what station in life you're in or what position you have. It's not about a title. You could be working in any role. And if you give your best, um, that's what's important. So I think that's something I took away from, you know, my grandma and seeing how hard she worked, even as um, in the in the cleaning industry you know she was she worked as a as a housekeeper and so i watched her i sat and you know was on the floor many nights but she cleaned office buildings and she's vacuuming and i'm sleeping um but she's getting it done and she did it optimally like she was the best yeah. <laughs> like i don't know anybody else that can do what she did right and so yeah. i just took that away about no matter where you are what you're doing like give it your all. What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they're interested in getting your services or learning more about what you do or possibly collaborating? How should they reach out? Yeah, so right now with my work, I'm, I'm launching an Instagram, a professional Instagram, because I feel like that's been a great way to connect with people and everybody's scrolling on there anyway. So it's nice yes. they can scroll past something pretty positive. Uh-huh. Um, so they can find me at Centered Texas. So that's C-E-N. T-E-R-E-D-T-X. Awesome. Anything that I didn't discuss or ask you that you'd like to mention? I think you covered it. I think the biggest piece is just really finding people that can help to validate those experiences and help you to feel more comfortable with sharing your story and getting connected and plugged into services. Um, So if people are listening to your podcast, I think that's a great, a great first step you know, to really be plugged into positivity in places and people that are, are sharing that it's okay to, to need help or to, to seek help. It's okay to do that. Thank you so very much for your time Thank you. and sharing your journey and expertise. This was awesome. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. Please visit my website, LonnieSwain.com, where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, check out companion blog posts, show notes, and lots of other cool stuff. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Buzzsprout, CastBox, Anchor, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and my website. I love and appreciate all of your feedback, so don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with at least three people who you think would enjoy it too or benefit from the information. Until next time, go where you are celebrated and appreciated, not just tolerated. Talk to you soon.